Good evening, church family. Can you guys hear me? Am I on now? It's not on mute. Right. Can you guys hear me? Not. Kind of, but not really. All right. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, sort that out at the end, back. Uh, what a great joy it is to come and end off the Lord's Day together, together uh, in God's uh, house with God's people. And I trust that God will encourage us as we come to look at His Word. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. Uh, we're carrying in on in our series through the book of Jonah, uh, looking at God's relentless grace as He pursues His people. That's what we've seen so far. We've seen how God pursues His people and rescues His people by His grace. And, and this evening we'll see, look at chapter 3 and see how He re- redeems His people And we'll see particularly uh, that no one is beyond His redeeming grace. Uh, That He's a God who saves even the most unlikeliest of people in perhaps the most unlikeliest of ways. And so uh, with that in mind, um, let me apologize again as I always do for the longer girls at the back screeching and making a noise. Hopefully they're not too much of a uh, distraction Jonah chapter 3, oh, there you go, now I can hear myself. All right, Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. This is God's word, let's hear it. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for fasts and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not eat, feed, nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God, Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Only so far in the reading of God's word may reform our lives, church, truth, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you have said through your prophet desire that you give water in the wilderness, you give rivers in the desert, you give drink to your chosen people, the people whom you formed for yourself, so that they would declare your praise. And dear Lord, as we've read your word, as we consider your word this evening, we pray that you would Allow the waters of you to fill up our hearts. They would satisfy us. That we would go to know you and love you more and more. 
so that we too would declare your praises, not just in here, but out in this world. That people would know that there is a God who saves sinners, sinners such as us. Help us, we pray, as we consider this passage. Help us, give us grace and mercy, and use us for your glory. Ultimately, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Imagine with me, if you will, that tomorrow when you wake up, the mayor of Johannesburg, Mpo Falatse, calls a press conference. And in that press conference, he announces that he's come to a conviction of sin. And he's come to saving faith. He's come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he and his cabinet call for a day of fasting and prayer, calling upon everyone to call upon the Lord to be saved. Imagine with me, if you will, that as the week progresses, you see that the pubs and the casinos and the malls are empty because the people of our city are gripped by their own sin. And they flood to the church to know about God and the things of God. Imagine with me, if you will, that your friends, your family members, your colleagues too, they come to the conviction of sin. And they come to confess faith in Christ. That hardened brother that belligerent boss, that indifferent son or daughter, they come to faith. Imagine with me, would that not be great? What would it be like to see such revival? Not just of one or two people coming to faith every now and then, but multitudes of people come to repentance of sin and confess faith in Christ. Now, as we dream big and big dreams, as you imagine with me, let me ask you a question. Do you think it's possible for God to do such things? Do you think it's possible for God to bring multitudes to himself? To bring our city to come to faith and repentance in him? I'm not asking if this is God's will. We know that God really does perform revivals. They're not the norm. God works Slowly through small things. I'm not asking if this is God's will. I'm asking if God is able to do this. If, if we're honest, and if I'm honest, we, we probably doubt that God can do this. We hear of various revivals in the past in the UK and in America, and even in South Africa, back with Andrew Murray. We, we hear of passages like this where God brings multitudes to himself. We hear of Pentecost. But we live in the years of small things. We, we see sin and wickedness just abound all over. And, and we see more deconversion than conversion. And we therefore perhaps think that God doesn't do stuff like this. That he doesn't actually save in such radical ways, in such unexpected and unlikely ways. I'll be honest, I think sometimes we lose confidence in what God has done, and therefore as a result we lose confidence in what God can do. Not, not merely in the salvation of multitudes, but perhaps even in the salvation of one sinner. 
See, our passage reminds us that God has and can save in unsuspected ways. God can save even the most unlikeliest of people. Let's look at this passage. This passage reminds us of God's plan, of God's care, God's power, and ultimately of God's grace. I want you to see four things as you consider the text, a gracious commission, a great city, a great change, and a gracious God. And I flank those four points with grace because God's grace runs through it all. Firstly, I want you to see a gracious commission. Look at verse 1 to the first part of verse 3 again. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. The story of Jonah, in a sense, starts again in chapter 3. In the first section of Jonah, we saw how Jonah was commissioned by God to go to Nineveh and to declare God's word. Yet as we saw, Jonah disobeys God and he flees the opposite direction. And we remember the results, don't we? Because of his disobedience, he finds himself on a boat and then in a storm and then in the ocean, then in a great fish and then finally on the verge of death itself. And at that point, when he is at the verge of death, he, he cries out, he prays to the Lord, and God saves him. Well, in the second section of Jonah, which starts in this chapter, the story starts up again. God again goes to Jonah. He goes again and commissions Jonah to go to the Ninevites. You see something of this restart when you notice the similarities between chapter 1, verse 1, 2 and 1 and 2, and Jonah chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. In both texts, the word of the Lord goes to Jonah, calling upon him to go to the Ninevites and to declare God's judgment. In both passages, we have the same God, the same commission, the same message. But there's something different. What's the difference? It's not God, it's not the commission, it's not the message. It's the messenger. Jonah's what's different here. You see that in his response, unlike before. Jonah hears the word, and he arises, and he goes promptly to Nineveh. Now, now what's made the difference? What has made this reluctant prophet all of a sudden so obedient, so willing to obey? Would it would seem to be the grace of God. Unlike before, Jonah now has experienced God's redeeming grace. He has seen that God indeed is good. He has tasted and seen the goodness of God. And it would seem, therefore, at this point, Jonah obeys the commission of God because he's experienced the, the grace of God. In fact, Jonah being commissioned by God again is itself a sign of grace, isn't it? Grace that not only redeems, but grace that restores. Uh, listen to Calvin on this. There is here set before us a remarkable proof of God's grace. That he was pleased to bestow on Jonah his former dignity and honor. He was indeed unworthy of the common light. But God not only restored him to life, but favored him again with the office and honor of a prophet. Despite having rebelled against God, 
God still calls Jonah. God still wants to use Jonah. And therefore, God gives Jonah this gracious commission. It's gracious because it flows from grace. It's gracious because he doesn't deserve this recommissioning. It's gracious because God still sees fit to use disappointing sinners. That should make you think of another commission in the New Testament. The resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew 28, he goes to his disciples and he gives them the great commission. His disciples who deserted him and abandoned him and and doubted him and denied him. He gives them this great commission which in a sense is gracious given the nature of their waywardness. See, God loves to use saved sinners for his glory. Marvel upon that fact for a moment. We are sinners by nature. We've sinned in word, thought, and deed. We, like Jonah, daily rebel against God. How often have we not fled in the opposite direction to God's will? And yet not only does he save us by his grace, but for his glory he sets us apart for his service. Me and you, saved sinners by grace for his glory. God loves to use the most unlikely means for his glory. Think of any hero of the faith, Abraham, Moses, David, Peter, John, Paul, all sinners, all unlikely servants, yet greatly used by God for his glory. That's what we see in the book of Jonah. Sinners saved by grace being used for the glory of of God. In fact, I would argue that the grace that redeems us, the grace that restores us, is the grace that actually makes us persuasive and compelling. I think you see a hint of this in Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, and Jonah chapter 3, verse 2. I'm sad to say my beloved ESV has missed something here. In the ESV, both in chapter 1 and 3, we are told that Jonah must call out against Nineveh. But most translations point out that there's a difference between those two verses. In chapter 1, verse 2, Jonah must, in the Hebrew, ka'al, call out against the city. In chapter 3, verse 2, it is ka'al, meaning call to the city. Different prepositions. The first is is negative, the the second is positive. And and now is there significance in that? I think there is. Jonah, having experienced the grace of God, is now better equipped to proclaim the grace of God. Why? Because like them, he too is a sinner, and like him, they too can be saved. It's significant then that in Luke 11.30, Jesus says that Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites. A sign in what way? A sign of what God can do. A sign that God saves rebels, sinners. Listen to Palmer Robertson. I'm paraphrasing him here slightly. He says this, Jonah's own experience in and out of the belly of the great fish speaks about the possibility of of forgiveness, restoration, and blessing. Jonah's life experience is meant to shout to his hearers, look at me. Forgiveness and restoration are possible even for those who disobey and run away from God. 
instead of preaching exclusively against the city, Jonah's very presence, therefore, was meant to be a message of hope to the city. I wonder, dear friend, do you see yourself as a message of hope to your city? A sign of what God can do. Dear, dear Christian, let us rejoice. Our God is a God of second chances. No, no, He's the God of the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth and the seventh chance. So he's a God of daily chances because His mercies are new every day. Rejoice in that fact, but also rejoice in the fact that this God is a God who loves to save and restore and use sinners for His glory. He loves to use unlikely servants, sinners saved by grace, sinners like you and me, so that the world would see signs of what God can do, signs to others what He is able to accomplish in rebels. Realize, like Jonah, the Lord our God has given you and I a gracious commission. That's the first thing I want you to see in that particular this passage. The second note, a great city in the second part of verse 3. A great city. In the second part of verse 3, we're given a glimpse into Nineveh. And even though the information is sparse, it's quite significant. We're told that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. We're given a hint of how big it is because it takes three days' journey to cross it. And now some commentators debate the Hebrew. Does that mean it took three days to cross the city within the walls? Does it mean to take, it took three days to cross the city and its uh, surrounding areas, its districts? Or does it mean it took three days, according to Assyrian custom, to move through and preach to the entire city? Now, the second option is probably more correct. But the point in the narrative is to stress the size and the importance of the city. See, see, this isn't just any city. No, this is the principal city of the Assyrian Empire, one of the most dominating empires in the ancient Near East. In fact, at one point, Nineveh became the capital of Assyria. Think of our modern-day London or, or Washington or Johannesburg. See, Nineveh was very much like our modern capitals, the center of political and cultural and religious life of the nation. Not only is this a great city, no, more than that, this is a city filled with sinners. In chapter 1, verse 2, we're told that God sends Jonah to Nineveh for this reason, that their evil had come up before him. Even in verse 8 of chapter 3, the king of Nineveh himself confesses that they are an evil people who do violence. To give you a glimpse of the people in Nineveh, listen to Nahum chapter 3, verse 1 to 4, where God announces this woe against Nineveh and the Assyrians. He says, woe to the bloody city, full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword, glittering spear, hosts slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. 
and all for the countless whorings of the prostitutes, graceful and deadly charms who betrays nations with their whorings and peoples with their charms. See, the Assyrians were infamous for their sins, whether it was greed or violence or injustice or slavery or imperialism. These are not pleasant people. Why do you think Jonah wants to avoid them? But the wonder of God's grace is this, dear friends. For all its evil, God still cared for Nineveh. Jonah may have given up on them, but clearly God didn't. Notice the footnote in ESV, if you have your ESV here. In the Hebrew, verse 3 literally reads that Nineveh is a great city to God. That's an idiom that emphasizes more than just the largeness of the city. Rather, it emphasizes, you could say, how large the city lays on God's heart. The idea is this. God cares for this city. He cares even for these people. We, we see this in chapter 4, verse 11. And, and where God says to, to Jonah, And should I not pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. See, God knows the evil of these people, yet he still has compassion on them. I cannot but help think of Jesus here. Remember when Jesus saw Jerusalem? Jerusalem that killed the prophets? Jerusalem that a few days later will kill the Son of God in unbelief? Jesus sees that Jerusalem and he has compassion. Why? Because of its people. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. There are people who didn't know their left from their right. I wonder, do we share this compassion for our city? We live in a great city, a sinful city, yes, but a city that God cares for. Why? Because it's filled with people who are made in His image, yet people who too are harassed and helpless without a shepherd. Let me ask you, dear friends, how large does our city lay on your heart? Watch your heart to Johannesburg and its people. Uh, Tim Keller uh, has written much on the city, and he mentions there's typically three responses. We, we either romanticize the city, we love its cultural life, we love the, the, the nice eating places and those things, and so we romanticize it, we love it for the gain we get out of it. Or we disdain the city, we cannot wait to, to go to the coast or go to the platinum and just get away from the urban jungle. Or we're just ignorant to the city. We're just indifferent. We, we're just so busy and caught up in our own lives that we miss what's going on around us. And, and all three of those approaches are unhelpful. And, and the way to avoid them, I would argue, is that we need to see again that our city is full of people. People made in God's image. I think in all our busyness and all our selfishness, we fail to see the people around us. People whom God has compassion on, not wishing that any should perish, but that all would reach repentance and that they would turn and live. 
Why else would God place us here? Because he cares for our great city and its people. So that's the second thing I want you to see, the, a great city, uh, first part of verse 3. Third thing I want you to see, a great change. A great change. The majority of our text actually focuses on the Ninevites and how they respond to Jonah's message, and their, their response is one of faith and repentance. Here we see how these once hardened and violent Assyrians are changed. Once boastful in their sin, now they grieve over their sin. Once haters of God and the enemies of God's people, now they cry out to God. The writer describes it in an upside-down manner. Instead of starting with the king, he starts with the people as if to say this revival happened organically from the ground up. Uh, Firstly, we're told that the people believed God. Not merely Jonah's word, but they believed in God. That phrase that is used expresses this idea of trusting a person. It's very similar to the Thessalonians who received the word of God, not as the word of man, but as what it truly is, the word of God. Secondly, as a result, we're told that they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth. Uh, a sackcloth was a thick, coarse cloth, and, and to, wear it, to, to wear it symbolized the rejection of earthly pleasures and, and, and comforts. And, and therefore, it generally was a sign of, of grief and, and repentance. And, and so we see you're a people, a, a wicked people, who for all intents and purposes express evidence of faith in God and repentance over their sin. See, you're we see a people that turn to God. Not not just the people, but the king himself turns to God. We're told quite poetically that the king arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. The king of Nineveh, in a sense, dethrones himself. He abdicates his throne in light of the true king. And he grieves over his sin, mourning his own guilt. And that's not all, however, we see that the king issues a decree, a a proclamation throughout the city. He calls for a city-wide fast that they would deny their own pleasures and rather desire after God. He he calls for everything, even the animals, to be covered in sackcloth to grieve over their sin. He calls for national prayer that people would call out mightily and fervently to God. He calls for general repentance, telling them to stop their wicked ways, to turn from their violence. See, this is a man who, like his people, has come to faith and repentance. You see something of this faith in verse 9 where he says, Who knows, God may turn and relent and, and, and return from his anger so that we may not perish. So even he knows that God doesn't have to pardon him. Yet he expresses a sliver of faith, a a glimmer of hope that God perhaps may show mercy. He may relent. After all, why is Jonah there? See, all in all, contrary to what some suggest, there is nothing in these verses that seem to suggest a superficiality. It seems to be your genuine faith, genuine repentance. Now we know future generations of Ninevites perished under God's judgment. They, like Israel so many times, hardened their heart against God and turned from God. Yet the glorious truth of this passage is you are the Assyrians. You are the enemies of God's people 
and they believed God. They repented of their sin and turned to the one true living God. Do you see what God is able to do? Do you see the people that God is able to save? Violent, greedy, idolaters. Now, a good question to ask at this point is, how did this great change come about? What was the, uh, the, the cause behind them turning? And, and the answer is simple from the text. It is the word of God. Jonah preached the word, and he ends up preaching what is five words in the Hebrew, eight in the ESV, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, to be fair, Jonah probably preached a little bit more than five words, but the narrator wants us to see that Jonah didn't say much. Rather, the idea seems to be that Jonah just delivered the word. He probably didn't even deliver it with any compassion or any urgency. And that's the point for us. The point for us is to see and behold the, the power of God's word. You again see something of this in verse 4 with the word overthrown. Uh, that Hebrew root has essentially two meanings. The first meaning is negative. It means to, to turn over. It means to destroy. That's how Jonah preached it, and that's how the Ninevites received it. But the second, the second meaning, however, is positive. It means to, to turn around. It means to repent. It means to be transformed. And, and that's actually what ends up happening. And, and the point the writer is seemingly making is that God's word is powerful. God keeps his word. He does overturn the city. But in transforming the city in faith and repentance, as Isaiah 55, 11 reminds us, God's word won't return to him empty. It will accomplish his purposes. See, the means through which God powerfully works, the means through which God brings change in the most hardened, sinful, evil heart is the word of God. What does Paul say? Romans 10, 17. So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The question for us is, dear friends, do you have confidence in God's word? Do you believe that God's word can accomplish this? I would suggest that if we did, if we had confidence in God's word as truly powerful, we would be more diligent and more devoted and more desirous to declare it to the nations around us, to the people around us. Did you notice the clear comparison that's being made here between Jonah's proclamation and the king's? Jonah calls the people and he essentially just says five words. The king, however, hears God's word, and he says a lot more than five words. He calls for the nation to fast, to grieve, to pray, to repent. The king, with all his might and all his authority, is far more diligent and desirous that people would be saved. Far more diligent and desirous of Jonah than Jonah. Dear friends, are we pleading with the people in our city? Are we pleading with our friends, our family members, our colleagues? Are we pleading with them with all the authority and power that we can muster to turn to God? To believe, to repent of their sin, to avoid the coming judgment. And Christianity speaks about a coming judgment. 
Are we being diligent and devoted because we have confidence in the power of God's word and that God is able to bring change in the lives of our hearts and the lives of the people around us through his word? That leads me to the next thing I want us to see, the final thing I want to see. Unlike Jonah, we don't, do not proclaim primarily a message of just judgment and God's justice. No, we proclaim a message about a God who shows mercy, a God who is gracious. That's what I want you to see, a gracious God, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, some have suggested that uh, the faith and repentance of the Nivenites wasn't, uh, wasn't genuine, wasn't legitimate. Uh, they said it was superficial because, after all, they never confessed the name of Yahweh in their repentance. I, I, I kind of disagree with that interpretation. Here we're told that God sees their works, He sees their faith, He sees their repentance, and He doesn't dismiss it as superficial hypocrisy as He's done time and time again with Israel. Now, apparently from God's perspective, he sees their faith and their faith and their repentance and their turning is genuine. So much so that he relents, that he turns from his fierce anger. In this response, you need to see that God is actually keeping his promises. In Jeremiah 31, or Jeremiah 18, 7 to 8, uh, God made this promise, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning what I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. Now that should make us think of another promise. God not only makes this promise to the nations, he makes it to his people. Second Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, what do these promises teach us? What does Jonah 3.10 teach us? Listen to Calvin on this. He says, God is ready to be reconciled and ever prepared to embrace those who without hypocrisy turn to him. What we're taught is this. No matter your sin, no matter how much you loved your sin and persisted in it, no matter how heinous and wicked and vile your sin was, God is ready and able and willing to forgive. He's willing, able, and ready to reconcile sinners, to restore them. See, we're being taught that you are never beyond the reach of God's grace because God loves saving, restoring, and using sinners. But there's a huge but. You need to humble yourself. You need to call out in faith. You need to repent of your sin. You need to change your mind about what your sin means and change your life in a response. You need to put to death that sin and believe upon this God. This is one of the historical purposes of the book of Jonah. Jonah is written to convict and rebuke the nation of Israel for their failure, their failure to believe in God and to repent. 
We see this throughout their history again and again. Israel failed to walk in God's ways. They broke his law. They worshipped idols. They committed heinous injustice. Even in the period that Jonah was written, they were guilty of turning from God. Just go read the prophecies of Amos and Hosea. And you'll see that the contrast between the Ninevites and Israel is quite compelling. The covenant people of God who, who know the God of grace repeatedly fail to obey his word, fail to repent and believe. Yet here is Nineveh, the city of violent pagan idolaters. They hear God's word, and they repent and they believe. In a very real way, this repentance of Nineveh is a rebuke to those of us who know the one true living God, who have experienced his saving grace, his restoring grace even, yet who fail to believe and who fail to put sin to death, who fail to turn from their sin. Interestingly, that's how Jesus interprets and uses this passage. I'm not sure if you knew that Jesus refers to this passage. In Matthew 12, Jesus again is in a confrontation with the Pharisees, and they're asking for a sign. He says, no sign will be given but the sign of Jonah. And he tells, the, he tells those unbelieving, repentless, is that a word, repentless, Pharisees, he says this in verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it. For they repented, at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. As one pastor I listened to said, the men of Nineveh will either be a model for us, or they will be a judge over us. The question is, how will you respond? How will you respond? Will you respond like unbelieving Israel, in love with your sin, in unbelief, or will you respond like a repentant Nineveh? Indeed, we have something far greater than Jonah. We haven't merely heard the word of God through Jonah. No, we have heard of the word of God in Jesus. Jesus, the, the word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us, who for us and our salvation went to the cross of Calvary, who tasted and swallowed the full cup of God's wrath so that he would relent and not pour out his wrath on those who have believed upon his son and who have repented of their sin. But behold, we serve a gracious God who not only sends imperfect prophets like Jonah, he sends his perfect son to save us from the wrath that our sin deserves, to bring us to God and to reconcile us to him as our father, do you see what God has done if you're a believer? Do you see what he's done in your life? Do you see what God can do? Dear church, let us not lose confidence in our God. Let us not lose confidence in what he has done in our lives, in the life of this church, and let us not lose confidence in what he can do through our lives and through the life of this church. Let us take up the great and gracious commission that's been given to us. Let us go to the people of the city, loving them as people made in God's image. Let us declare the word with diligence and devotion in order to see a great change in their lives. 
And let us do all of this because we serve a gracious God who saves unlikely sinners in the most unlikeliest of ways. Look at us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've considered this passage, as we've tried to understand this, this book, this third chapter in Jonah, we pray that you would just impress its truths upon our hearts. I do pray, dear Lord, that the words of my mouth would have been pleasing to you and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight because they lead to a change of life, that they lead to a life lived for you in our city, a life that is a signpost of what you're able to do. And we pray this, dear Lord, because you are our rock and you are our redeemer. We ask this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.